Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Good afternoon, it's Sally Hughes. That was Prince and Get Off. Hello. Hi, Sally. Kate Severe is here, obviously, um, as ever. We also have Flo Perry, artist and writer, the author of the new book, How to Have Feminist Sex. So we're going to be talking about loads of shagging in a bit. And we have our beloved dear friend of the show, Katie Puckwick, who we really don't deserve. She's good for us. Too good for us, really. Oh, you're too good. <laughs> Thanks for coming back, Puckwick. So happy to be here. Try to keep me away. <laughs> so uh, we kicked off with Prince because who better to kick off um, sex chat? Flo's book is about sex, so... I decided to make the entire playlist about shagging, which was incredibly easy because it's a rich scene. (laughs) It took me about 10 minutes to put together a very kind of plump uh, playlist full of shagging songs. Well, you know that the the term rock and roll refers to shagging. So, you know, the original blues expression, rockin' and rollin'. So there you go. So that's a euphemism for shagging? It's baked into the cake of pop music, basically. Very pleasing. It is. Of all the playlist themes, apart from obviously love, sex comes the most easily. Comes the most. I put it together in no time. It is the most, probably the most second, the second most common theme in um, pop and rock music. So lots more where that came from. Um, Should we start by talking to Flo about her book? Yes. And then there are lots of topics we're covering today that kind of feed in. They do. To the same idea, right? Yeah. Uh, so the book is called How to Have Feminist Sex, a fairly graphic guide. So Flo did all the illustrations and all the writing, even designed the font the we font. discovered. <laughs> yes, every, absolutely everything. <laughs> um, why did this book need writing, Flo, do you think? Uh, I think that there's a lot... Feminism is really trendy these days, thanks, mm. Beyonce. And I think that there's there was a lot of conversation about... Uh, feminism in the media but all the conversation to do with sex and feminism was to do with how sex is a source of trauma for women mm. and I wanted to present the kind of opposite view of that that also sex can be a sort well is a source of joy for everyone and we should talk about female pleasure more in the media and so that women feel more like empowered to ask for it I think yeah yeah I came up in um, women's magazines, in women's glossy magazines, and I worked on Cosmopolitan. Obviously, when Cosmopolitan launched in the 60s and um, Helen Gurley Brown uh, launched it, it was all about that kind of... um, It was tying into the sexual liberation movement, and it Mm. was all about women um, seeking, obtaining, demanding pleasure for the first time. How... Where had those magazines stopped serving us, do you think? Or had they? Are you just trying to build on that great legacy? Or do you feel they'd ceased to serve women in that way? Uh, I think those magazines did a, a great job in some respects. Obviously, the the view they presented was very heteronormative, very for mm. the skinny white lady of the world. Um, so it wasn't a very diverse view of sexual positivity. But I think it's hard. Like When you have literally millennia of patriarchy telling you women are women are just for men that's what women's sex drives are for they're like a commodity to be bought and sold 
it takes more than just from the 60s to get over it. It's a kind of like we have these narratives built into our culture for so long that basically we need to keep going and keep building new narratives where you can be like a happy little slag. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's goal should be to be, you know, a happy little slag. Yeah. Um, it's interesting about magazines, though, because I think now uh, porn, especially for young boys, the kind of the general thought is that a lot of young people are learning about sex through porn. And I yeah, think that that's hub. probably right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Blessed be. Um, <laughs> for me, it was magazines. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how much of what I learned in, in why, because like we didn't, we didn't really talk about sex in my house. That wasn't like a thing where we were just like, <laughs> right, mm-hmm. let's get out the, you know, the vulva puppet and go all over the parts like that. That never happened. Um, I learned so much of like reading and stealing red magazine from, from a red book magazine from from my mum and going through like romance novels and like piecing together ideas of what sexuality was mm. and what sex was um i sure wish that i had had <laughs> that i had this book even you know maybe 10 years ago <laughs> i mean you can learn a lot about sex in ruby fruit jungle i found oh my goodness yeah all those great and fear of flying the erica yeah. jong book yeah. which i found on the beach when i was 12 years old i mean that's a lottery to a 12 year old yeah right. oh zipless <laughs> fuck that term has stayed with <laughs> me forever <laughs> but i think flo the thing that's so great about this book is that i think um we have have to relearn this information every generation mm. so um we just have to it, whether it's uh you know cool musical artists or great classic films or just our own entitlement to get what we want in bed i think this is a a great way to bring it back to the to the kids because one of the side effects of the sexual revolution in the 60s, sadly, was it boomeranged back against women because men were able to go, hey, ladies, there's no shame in having sex and you're on the pill, so you're not going to yeah. get knocked mm-hmm. up. So come on and be available for me, you know, even you know, it, it, without consent or anything. So your book is actually a really good reminder, especially now in this day and age of teenage girls being pressured in high school to, mm-hmm. you know, send naked pictures of themselves to, you know, accept dick pics on their their phones. I mean, this is a a really great tool. Yeah, I think it's more than just uh, teenage girls in high school. Obviously, yeah, they they probably would really benefit from my book. But it's also Mm -hmm. women my own age who feel like they should wait to the third date to have sex with a man because they think if they put out on the first then they're somehow easy and he won't stay with them. And that is like a, a narrative that feels so old fashioned, but it's so mm. yeah, it's just still accepted. There. Yeah. And like, I get shocked when I talk to my friends and this is still something they're like, oh no, I would never have sex on the first day. It also has no basis in reality. Um, yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, it, it doesn't, doesn't work. I've actually it, tried it. Experiments it, 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 does not work. No. No. She knows. Yeah. yeah. And also older women who feel like they're, they're not kind of like young and look like a model anymore. They don't deserve to have a full sex life yeah Mm. and i think we never talk about long-term relationships as well and how sex in them is like a whole different challenge and it's always presented as like sex should just be this spontaneous young thing that happens between two pretty people when they're 23 and we don't talk about that that's just a very narrow definition of sex and was it a challenge as a young woman you are an undeniably young woman writing a book with that um breadth of scope i suppose because trying to put yourself in the shoes or in the knickers, in fact, <laughs> um, of a much 
a much older woman and maybe a woman who has been married for a long time. What kind of research did you have to do for that or were you a bit more instinctive about it? Oh, I did a lot of reading, obviously. Uh, read the other books about sex. Thought my one's going to be better. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I've been in long-term relationships too where, you know, the honeymoon period can die pretty quickly. <laughs> so like, I, I know what it's like to like yeah. think like, oh shit, we haven't had sex in two weeks and, and you know, what does this mean and all of that I know what that's like um so I think yeah I think I think that I brought my own life experience and uh you know chat about yeah because <laughs> what, what really struck me about this book is that I think that there's a lot of especially on Instagram you get a lot of um body positivity love yourself mm. and um you know wanking's normal everyone should use a vibrator but and that's just very like the tip of the iceberg and what i really 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 loved about this is that it goes much deeper and there were things that i read in your book that i hadn't really been able to articulate or knew that there was a phrase or a kind of framework to discuss and particularly when you talk about um the sort of accelerator versus brakes mm. um with with your own sort of uh, sex drive and trusting your brain over your body um do you want to kind of explain some of those kind of concepts that you kind of delve yeah. into in the well, book? Well, basically, a bit more? they're all terms to make you more confident in expressing yeah. what you want from sex. Because um, I think it's really hard to talk about sex because we don't do it very much, so we don't have very good language to do it. Yeah. And something we always talk about is the sex drive, where you're like, I have a small sex drive or a large sex drive. But that's a very simplistic way of looking at it. Um, and like, so when you're in a long term relationship and you're not having sex so much anymore, like the initial the initial spark has died. You might think, oh, it's just a mixed mismatch of sex drives. Mm. But actually, there's this model called the sex accelerator and the sex break, which is a really useful way of thinking about this, which is basically stuff that hits your sex accelerator, sex accelerator, <laughs> uh, <laughs> turns you on, and stuff that hits your sex break turns you off. And so if you don't want to have sex, what, what is happening? Is not enough stuff hit, hitting your sex accelerator, or is too much stuff hitting your sex break, or is it both? Mm. I mean, it's never the sex. <laughs> I, I, think that, I mean, which ties in with what you're saying, really. It's never just the, it's not, it's never a libido, well, it's rarely a libido mismatch. It's like what's going outside of it to yeah. make one person want it and one person not so much. It's never just the sex. Yeah. Right? Mm. Well, libido is just like a huge word that encompasses exactly. so much. Like mm. that everything that's happened before you got into bed for a start. Yeah, it might be your biology. It might be your hormonal balance at that time. But also it's the context surrounding that sex. It is like what's going on at work. Do you feel good about your body? Like, mm. is there other underlying tensions in your relationship that means that you find it hard to connect to your partner? This person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All of this. Is it too chilly? Yeah. Like- <laughs> Yeah, no, exactly. And I think I wrote down stress and sex because you really kind of go into the sort of um, what's happening with like your fight or flight and the hormones that and the chemicals that rush through your body mm. um, when you're feeling stressed. And if you just read an email from your boss, you and it was quite stressful, you might not feel totally turned on five minutes later because you've had this kind of rush of, yeah. of chemicals. People also mm. react to that in different ways. Like some people want to shag all the time when they're stressed. They want to get it out. Yeah. And other people like shut down. Yeah. yeah. And Super it's just... jealous of those really just <laughs> <laughs> I think... horny stressed people. Yeah, me too. 
This um, I I have your book in my hand, Flo, for the first time, and I am just dazzled by the artwork and the presentation. It's a graphic novel, yeah. you know, just the, the way we talked about the font, but the way it's it looks handwritten, and so it isn't just like a dry manual going through these. No, it's funny. dry manual. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's fun. It's it's easy. You know, fun for the whole family. Um, <laughs> and I uh, flipped through to something that actually I have questions about, and maybe you all can enlighten me, maybe even through um, firsthand experience, but uh, squirting, uh, (laughs) a.k.a. female ejaculation. Now, um, just scanning what you've written, um, it does get overrepresented in porn. Um, And not that I know about it from that, but I have, like, I actually have stumbled across a few alarming uh, incidences of it just through, uh, you know, videos that are recommended to me, you know, Mm -hmm. the algorithm, like, you know, like one minute I'm watching a pop video and then the next minute you want to watch a squirting video. (laughs) Um, But... (laughs) It, I, whenever I hear it discussed or have seen it, I feel like whatever the lady version is of um, emasculated. <laughs> and I, I, I wish there is there a, a lady version of emasculated, I, I effeminated, effeminated. But I feel like I'm not good enough because I can't. Uh, come forth like some sort of, you know, Yellowstone geyser <laughs> or something, you know, some natural wonder in a, yeah. in a national but didn't park. didn't they discover not that long ago that essentially it doesn't happen, that it's essentially we? Okay. There was a fairly definitive major study, There's I think, a couple like of years no ago. There's actually, like, no major study done on it. This oh. is the thing. I, like, I've written about it in my book. Like, it, 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 like, and also... For some women, it probably is mainly we. Yeah. But for other yeah. women, it's not. And like, it is, it's like no one really knows what it is, but Even it does like happen the... and it's not just exactly the same as wetting yourself. Yeah. Oh, okay. And G-spot, not a thing. G-spot, how it's kind of sold in Cosmo isn't a thing. You don't have, yeah. not every woman has a bundle yeah. of nerves up inside yeah. them that... It's basically that the, feels like a walnut. I recall. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, <laughs> mm, couldn't sexy. find it. Anything <laughs> that you're referring to as this G spot is just the other side of your clit that you're feeling through your vagina. Oh, Anything that feels crazy. nice is actually just your clit. Because it's like massive. It's huge. Yeah, it's <laughs> there's really, a lot going on down there. There is a lot going on down there, and I think I think it's on um, uh, on Netflix. Vox do a series called Explained. Is that right? Oh yeah, I've watched that. Yeah, so Very there's one on the program. female oh, orgasm. It's such a good twenty minute oh, little. So good. It's really good. Yeah, and they talk about the fact that they actually don't know what muscles or what's contracting and what's spasming when a woman has an orgasm. They just don't fucking know. Well, that and it's a, like, how do we not know? This is a recurring theme, it's a though, recurring isn't theme it? If it's in a woman, <laughs> if it's uh, in a woman, not so much it's care a and mystery. attention given. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's like, I mean, just the fact that the baseline of, of all medicine is predicated on men and, and the men's anatomy and mm. their body and their functions, and you know, even just the fact that the the recent all female spacewalk was delayed because they didn't have the right size spacesuits. So a few months ago, it was like, oh, we don't have lady-sized astronaut outfits. So back to square one. Like, come on, NASA. So much of sort of female myth and mystique is no such thing. It's just a group of men couldn't be asked to find out (laughs) very often. Um, Tell us about the creative process for this, though, because this is a full 360 creation. You did everything on this book. You Mm -hmm. wrote it. You drew it. As we said, you designed the the font. (laughs) 
Was that always your intention or did you, as you went along, think, actually, I'm the best place to do this because I know what I want? Uh, no, it was always my intention. I, uh-huh. like, yeah, I am like 50-50 writer, illustrator. Mm-hmm. So, And it's like, I find it easier to explain myself that way, mm-hmm. I think, that I find... I think, especially about sex, drawings are really helpful because they show you stuff very clearly in a way that's not pornographic. Yes. Well, in my case, not. <laughs> Maybe it is for you. Like, if you're getting off on it, no judgment. I but mean, this, this is a, I'm looking at a little vagina in a fur coat, and <laughs> she has hands and high heels on, and I'm very into it. That yeah. could be pornographic to some. Yeah. I was thinking about this on the way in. The illustration's been such a powerful tool in sex education over the mm. years, hasn't it? Obviously, things like The Joy of Sex, a really important book when I was growing up, literally every Every house had the joy of sex, right? The Dr. Alex Comfort book with all those illustrations. Um, but also the number of teenagers who grew up with more magazines seeing really explicit sexual positions mm. and they were able to see them because they were illustrated and they weren't... Or done weren't... with Barbies, do you remember that? Yeah. That was such a thing. Uh, because I was they were into that. <laughs> because they weren't explicitly photographed like pornography. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, illustration is an incredibly important and powerful tool, really, isn't it, in sex education? Yeah, and when writing the book, I found it easier. So like, there's big topics covered in the book. It is like kind of heavy in some places. Yeah. But then you can lighten it up with a drawing, basically. And what I love, too, is that you, you, you haven't just done a very... Um, PC, this is diverse and inclusive attempts. Like it is, like down to the nipples. Like <laughs> there are so many different sizes and shapes of tits in this. And I love tits. it. <laughs> There's so many boobs. Um, but I think it's just like, and people of all different, you know, gender identities and, and skin tone and hair, like so many different kinds of pubes. Mm. Like it's just so nice to see because you don't see it. You know it exists out in the world. Like, we can imagine everyone here in Soho naked. Some might be. Um, (laughs) And we know that they all look different underneath their clothes, but you don't see enough. You always just see the same, like, women who basically don't even have, like, labia. Like, there's just, like, not... You're like, where? Yeah. Hmm. (laughs) Where is it? I find that even with plus-size models, most of them don't have a double chin, have a flatter stomach and a bigger ass. Yeah. Like, the diversity that we see in our media is very slim, Compared to the diversity, well, most plus of size models until ladies. very recently looked like models only on a bigger scale, right? They yeah, looked, they right. looked like a classic, a classic fashion model that had been expanded outwards in perfect proportion. Yes, right. I feel so, like even like some of the really big plus size models, like Tess Holiday, is that yeah, her name? yeah. Even she has like a perfect hourglass proportion, yeah. which is why they're a model. Like, good for them. Like, yeah, yeah we want to see our clothes on hot people that have these perfect proportions if there is such a thing but at the same time you you don't get like the diversity you, no you really when we're don't. seeing so many of these images i mean maybe we should all just hang out in like swimming room changing rooms more. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, go down to your local gym and hang out in the locker room you will see a whole array yeah a whole array more than you want a whole flow array. i wanted <laughs> I wanted to ask you, um, I was just looking at your all vaginas are beautiful graphic with lots of variations on a theme. Mm-hmm. Um, and it reminded me of a predecessor of sorts to your book, which is, I don't know if I can say the word, but the C word, coloring book mm-hmm. uh, from the late 60s, early 70s. Did, did any of you guys uh, run into that over the no, years? No, no. So sadly, it's, no. It's kind of from the, the hippy-dippy, trippy granola years just a classic coloring book uh you know drawn in black and white but every page has a a different 
vagina, vulval uh, landscape going on, and then it's up to you, the owner of the coloring book, to to color it in as you would like. I'm sorry, yeah. but that feels like it would be a hit if re-released now. I yeah, think so. Yeah. I think so. So um, I just wanted to kind of throw That's that out there. That's a missed opportunity, I yes. think, for some publisher. Stocking stuffer. Yeah. <laughs> I think. Sitting on quite the archive there. <laughs> yeah. I think that would do really, really well now. I just keep thinking of so many puns. Anyway, <laughs> like sitting on. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the things that seemed really, really uh, apparent to me um, reading this is, and what made me really happy is that you obviously have such a wonderful, inclusive attitude towards sex. And <laughs> I mean, obviously, or else you wouldn't have written this book. Hello, Captain Obvious. Um, but I think it's worth noting that your mum is mm-hmm. Philippa Perry, author and psychotherapist psychoanalyst psychotherapist psychotherapist Psychotherapist. Um, I'm a huge fan of psychotherapy which I was telling you earlier (laughs) Um, what was the kind of if you don't mind sharing what was the sort of you mean you must have had quite a uh, open discussion about sex or in your household Um, I don't think I ever had like the talk I think it was just like an I think it's kind of bad to like kind of cop compartmentalize these things into yeah. the talk sure it should just be like an, an organic on, thing an ongoing conversation which you have about lots of different things throughout life i like it wasn't like we didn't talk about sex every day like i don't talk about sex with my parents now that's weird um <laughs> but like it was never shameful or i was ne- yeah there was no taboo and then you know my yeah. mom when i had like friends friends over <laughs> just did air this quotes my <laughs> um over she was always like i'm gonna put the fan on shut the door put my earplugs in you can do whatever you like <laughs> wow <laughs> modern mom yeah. <laughs> she but, loves white noise <laughs> yeah i mean so do i um but that's just to kind of drown out the foxes shagging outside <laughs> my house and upsetting my dog um I mean, that's so nice to hear, though, because I don't, I mean, yeah, it would be weird if you were to sit down and chat with your parents about, you know, what you did last night in explicit detail. Yeah. But I think it was just, I mean, not not to brag, but I went to your book launch and it was just, it was just so nice to see, like, okay, proud parents, proud mum, this is your wonderful graphic novel about sex <laughs> and everyone's really excited and, and happy and and proud about it. And I just... It just made me long for a time when that's just kind of the overall attitude. I think what Flo's saying about the day-to-day casual reference to it, though, is right. That's definitely been my approach. Mm. I, The reason I talk about sex quite freely and openly with my kids is because I'm too embarrassed to have the big talk. (laughs) I'm I'm too inhibited (laughs) to sit down and download all the information. So I've just had to kind of, I've had to leak it out since they were born day by day. Right. Because for me, it's more embarrassing, right? Right, right. Okay, now we're going to sit down and we're going to talk about it. I'd rather it was just an incidental part of life. Obviously, there are some big things that have to be discussed, you know, contraception so on but even that I, we've kind of talked about along the way so I'm hoping I don't have to do too much heavy lifting in a mortified oh God, fashion I'm really sweaty even just thinking about that <laughs> I think that's probably a thing that people dread from like the moment they get pregnant it's like oh god we're gonna have to discuss yeah, this <laughs> yeah but then I never had the talk as as far as I know up until the day my parents died they didn't actually know I'd started my periods even though I was divorced with two children at the time (laughs) I think it's you you get past a point where it becomes viable natural normal and so you have to get cracking I think really early on well this book is good because this book is the talk 
So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Y- you know, that this is something that... Well, I think because it's got pictures in it, people think it's for, like, their nine-year-old. <laughs> I just want to say it's not, like... No, no, there's no. A, maybe, like, There's, like, a threesome with Boris Johnson and Theresa May, I think, in one of the drawings, so... I mean, your, your children might not recognise who it is, but it's <laughs> but you definitely could absolutely, recognize Harry But Potter. I do think, although it's not a book for children, I think absolutely if you have kids 13 and above, you could casually leave it around the house yeah. and yeah. not panic if they picked it up. Yeah. I don't think is it would be... Is that what you're going to do? <laughs> <laughs> traumatic. Um, I think, yes, any any kids of teenage upwards could pick it up in safety, I would say, yeah, and I see think something so. relatively kind of healthy and wholesome. Yes. Uh, let's put a record on. When we come back, we're going to talk more about sex. There's some big news stories around it too. Let's talk about sex, salt and pepper, in honour of Flo Perry, who has written How to Have Feminist Sex, a fairly graphic guide. She has written it, drawn it, designed the font for it, which we're slightly <laughs> obsessed with. <laughs> so obsessed. Um, <laughs> we still have lovely Katie Puckwick here, very Ooh. good friend of the show's. And, of course, Kate Severe. I'm Sally Hughes. Can we talk about the male pill? Because this is a story that just will not die. It won't die. So, for half a century now, scientists (laughs) have been working on the male contraceptive pill, on its viability. Um, And although it seems that they're not super close, but they're relatively close to cracking it, the research keeps stopping and starting because there's a perceived lack of interest which manifests in a lack of funding. So it's a bit of a stop-start project because of this lack of interest. Why do we think that is? Because research shows that lots of men say they would take it if it was available. Um, A third of sexually active British men say they would take a contraceptive pill, which is about the same as the number of women who take the contraceptive Mm. pill. So it's kind of about Mm. equal. Um, and eight out of ten people think that contraception should should be a shared responsibility. So if we think men should play a part in contraception, the same number of men want to take the pill as the number of women who do take the pill, why is there a perceived lack of interest? I have my own ideas, but I'm (laughs) curious to know from you ladies. I heard that, isn't it because the men can't put up with the side effects and then they published the side effects of the male pill and it was like mood swings. Oh, I remember hearing Lack this, of yeah. sex drive. Imagine. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, like can't imagine what that's like. Oh, so <laughs> that sounds so hard for you. Yeah, it's just like exactly the same side effects as the female pill. Well, uh, overall, the same number of men are saying they would take it, whether the, the BBC don't where this story hit on the homepage yesterday, the BBC doesn't say whether those men have been made aware of side effects or not. But overall, there is the same amount of interest. My concern, well, my lack of interest in a male contraceptive Mm -hmm. pill is that I would never trust a man to take a contraceptive pill. Yeah. I kept trying Mm. to think... I think the lack of of interest may be coming from women, not men. Right. Yeah. I, I, I really just don't want to be like a sexist asshole, but... Like, fuck, man. Like, I just don't... Uh, I think it's one thing if you're in a long-term relationship, yes. maybe, and you really trust that person. Um, I would trust my partner, too. 
But I think if you're just like dating and you don't know the person on that trust level, I, I don't know. I don't know. But I if don't. you don't know the person, maybe you should use a condom. Quite so. Quite That's so. a really yeah. good point. I forgot about those. <laughs> Yeah, I it yeah. Why? The difference Ugh. being the difference being that you almost always know that the man is wearing a condom. How would you know if yes. he'd taken his pill? There is there are visual cues with <laughs> um, with condoms. <laughs> there are visual um, cues. Although stealthing does happen and it's gross, um, but there are visual cues that a man is protecting you and him against yeah. uh, sexually transmitted infections. But would you take on? in good faith, that a man had taken his pill that morning? The problem for me with that question is that the consequences are for the women always and not for the men. Yeah. So you'd have to, for a man to have that level of responsibility to think at some point in the future, the near future, hopefully I will be having sex and I don't want to burden the lady with a a child, an unwanted child. So I will take this pill on the off chance that I will be meeting somebody that I will be like, there's so many there there's, you know, it's not to do with instant gratification. Like the condom, you know, is more like, Hey, I'm, I'm in it to win it. It's happening right now. I'm putting on that condom, but the pill requires for the man requires, would require so much of forethought. And I just feel like even for a woman, uh, you wouldn't really be taking a pill unless you just thought, Oh shit, I really don't want to be a mother right now in my life. So I'm definitely going to take that pill. Yeah, I yeah, for me it's not my I was talking to my husband about this this morning and and I was saying it's not an inherent mistrust I have of men. I'm not like bashing men, but it it's almost like saying to somebody, you know, never eat that cream cake or else somebody else will be fat for the rest of them li- of their lives or whatever. <laughs> you're you're basically taking a precautionary measure about something that will ultimately, demonstrably, mainly impact another person and right. not yourself, if you so choose not to be involved, which many men do. But I can't believe that as many like men trust women as they do. I get sure. sh- yeah. shocked at the amount sure. of men that are like, no, I didn't use a condom on the one night stand. But, but it does like, how do them? you know that? How do yeah. you know that like she's on the pill? Like she said she was on the pill. Yeah. Like, but you're even then, how be... do you know she doesn't have anything else? And like... also the man yeah. doesn't get a choice whether they keep the baby or not. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. Absolutely. I, I, I get this a lot. People say, um, because I have sons, people say, Oh, well, I bet you're glad you have sons. A son will never come home pregnant. And I say, But it's worse because because your son, quite rightly, will have no say mm. in in his girlfriend's accidental pregnancy and nor nor would I no. quite rightly her parents and she would make the decision as to what to do so in a way you're 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 kind of helpless if you if you're the guy you don't really have a say and it has to be that way it's the right yeah. way but yeah. it's hard it's hard and it's complicated yeah and yeah I think that's a really good point about the trust well how how do you know how do you know if someone if you don't really know that person how do you know that they are taking the pill you One just don't one of my don't. favorite hobbies is to like scare my male friends who's just like oh no i i didn't use a condom I'm like oh i can't wait to have your little baby soon <laughs> <laughs> little little daddy tom can't wait so cute and they're like oh fuck oh. But it's extraordinary how how quick to believe they are as you say how quick how um in good faith they take it if a woman says i'm on the pill i mean we know that that can't always be true we know that some women must lie about it because that's lie or they forget i forgot to take forget. the pill yeah. all the time and some women are very fertile yeah 
<laughs> one little pill missed and bang, you got a baby. Yeah. It, like it yeah. does happen. Yeah. yeah, no, it really does. Even if you do take it, it yeah. can still happen. I, I think that um, I, I think a form of contraception that relies on taking it at roughly the same time every day doesn't work for an awful lot of people. No. I think you know, if I had a teenage daughter, I would sincerely hope she had a long-term locker and loader contraceptive <laughs> might go like an implant and I can see why yeah. more and more people are doing that out of interest globally what do you think is the most popular form of contraception I would hope condoms no method so, I can't so, stop staring uh, at 36.4% of the world um, plans their family around not really taking any birth control so I the guess pull out mm. method. well the, well, the rhythm method withdrawal 3.1% of the world uses Wait. withdrawal I I'm just realizing I don't know the difference between the withdrawal you... and the rhythm method I'm like aren't those the same the rhythm method no. is calendar oh sure Sean mm-hmm. yes. would, would <laughs> <laughs> as I suspected <laughs> would you believe that I'm surprised to hear that the coil the IUD um, more people use the coil than the pill. Thirteen point yeah, seven with an IUD. I am one of them, same, and eight point eight percent of the world's population uses the pill as their chosen contraception. I mean, that's pretty high still, but um, mm. I wouldn't have expected the coil to be higher. No. I, I what don't is? Know that many people. I also coil. don't know what this other but one is. But Flo, your your <laughs> guess, male condom, seven point seven percent. I'm just such a huge condom fan. I just really mm. want to put it out there that, like, I feel like so many women take on the responsibility and are like, it's it should be on me. I should, yeah, I should like, for the man's pleasure, I should take the burden of the pill. And for a, and for a lot of women, that really works. Mm. But for a lot of women, I was on the pill for ten years, so like, I know yeah. I know what it's like. Yeah. And when I came off it, I felt like a a new woman, right? Isn't it? <laughs> it is. I was shocked because I was on it for twelve. Yeah. And I was actually shocked at how I felt off of it Mm. I was like am I like am I making this up because I feel genuine like I genuinely felt a physical difference in not taking it I don't want to like this is all very unscientific because it's also true in reverse yeah Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I know lots of women whose lives have been changed so positively by going on the pill not just in lifestyle ways but awful periods have become manageable or skin problems have yeah, ironed themselves. I love. I loved it for a really long time. Yeah, me too. It was like really great when I was a teenager. Yeah, but yeah, it did yeah. take a massive hit on my sex drive, and like I came off the pill. I, this is very unscientific and just anecdotal. My personal totally knowledge. fine. Yeah. <laughs> but like when I came off the pill, I went, went around to my friend's house and I was like, "Oh my god, Joe, I can't stop dreaming about penises." <laughs> Every man I walk past, I'm like, "He has a penis. He has a penis. <laughs> they all have penises." And she's like, "Yeah, this is called ovulation." And I'm like, "Oh my god, I haven't properly <laughs> ovulated Looney. in ten years. It feels great." <laughs> uh, withdrawal three point one. So three point one percent of the world's population are relying on the withdrawal method to avoid becoming pregnant. That's quite something, isn't it? Um, it And the rhythm method, which obviously uses uh, the menstrual cycle and calendars to work out safe days, dangerous days, high days and holidays, uh, 2.6%. And the implant, surprisingly, 0.7%. Now, I would have expected that to be higher because it's a no-brainer, right? It's Mm. the pill that you don't have to take. Is it something to to do with availability, though, if this is a worldwide... Yeah, I was thinking, if this is worldwide... Worldwide, the no method thing makes well, more sense. Well, you would need access to a doctor or a nurse, yes. and mm-hmm. I'm guessing it's expensive mm. to have an implant that stays in for six months or More three expensive months. I think than withdrawing. Some of them last a year. Mm. <laughs> more expensive than <laughs> withdrawing, um, for sure. 
But there is an interest there for men in taking the male pill. Um, but overall, scientists can't get the money for it. Are we conspiracy theorists about this? Do we feel that essentially the world wants contraception to be a woman's responsibility? It's almost like it's almost like I'm going to guess that a lot of the people that could invest in this or won't invest in this or the scientists that are uh, in charge of this are men just going to go out on a limb mm. and guess that perhaps they don't want to or that even if it's not that blatant and obvious if there's this kind of undercurrent of well it's a woman's responsibility I feel sorry for men though, because I'm sure that there are men out there yeah. who sensibly don't want to put all of their faith in yep. the fact in either slightly unreliable condoms or the fact that you know their girlfriend or their partners are taking the pill and want to have some of their own insurance. Yep, I'm sure there are like nice men out there that would love to take the pill yeah. just for that. Yeah, I'd, it's kind of a mark of a man. I think the condom thing is is a really good sorting hat of men. <laughs> The sorting uh, condom. Of men. I I feel quite shocked by um, how inured or, or how desensitised to things young people are now when I speak to them about... When we were coming... I, Katie's a little bit older than me, but we were kind of in London at the same time and, and doing the same generation. And we were just all terrified of AIDS, right? We oh, were, for sure. We were, we were utterly terrified of HIV and AIDS. And in those days, those two things always went together. Yes. Um, if you were HIV positive, you always developed AIDS and then you always died. And it was it was very, very different. And I know from talking to young people now that there isn't anything like the fear of STIs. Um, and, that's, and, and that's demonstrated in the figures for things like gonorrhea and chlamydia, which mm. um, are extremely high, particularly in inner cities. Um, but we were scared, right? You wouldn't... You, you wouldn't entertain the thought of having sex with a man without a condom. Yeah, I mean, uh, in the 80s, that was, uh, you were just terrified. I mean, it was kind of like the equivalent of kids coming up in the 60s, scared, you know, duck and cover, scared of the nuclear bomb. Yeah. It yeah. was kind of like the the terrifying specter that hung over the whole generation and um, definitely uh, didn't put a tiger in your tank yeah. when it came to getting cozy with uh with your nearest and dearest so you definitely would or or not even the nearest and dearest like a random person that you met you definitely would want to put on that condom and protect yourself and it was certainly uh, it was certainly a, a qualitative uh, way of judging whether men were good guys or bad guys because anti-condom men were just obviously untouchable you yeah, didn't want to know but i think it's yes. it's it's less it's less of a socially debilitating attitude now than mm. it was then. I think you can mm. kind of get away with being a man who hates condoms now. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know. I've also been married for a long time, so I can't speak <laughs> yeah, I to what's to happening these days. But uh, yeah, I mean, for me growing up, and also I grew up in, you know, suburbs and a brand new school where sex education was very much like showing you hideous photos of this is what could happen to your genitals if you don't use a condom and you will absolutely get pregnant if you ever have sex so wait as long as you possibly can like that sort of like just freak you out so that you don't even want to have sex right because yeah. so, your stress hormones are so high you're not yeah. interested um but yeah it was it was never like if any of my friends heard of anyone not using a condom and this was like you know uh, late 90s, early noughties, it'd be like, oh, Christ, really? Yeah. What's wrong with you? We, like, we're going to take you down to Planned Parenthood and get you tested, you fucking idiot. And, like, that yeah. was the sort of uh, 
culture mm-hmm. attitude towards towards um you know condoms and and the pill and everything and I don't know. I think you're younger than has... me, so you're in our flow, tell us. <laughs> I think porn has a lot to do yeah. with the kind of anti condom thing and the fact that you never see condoms in porn. And yeah. obviously, porn stars get checked every two weeks. They yeah. have to. Every yeah. time they come to a porn shoot, they have to present these certificates yeah. of like, I am clean. But that isn't happening in the real world. And people are copying what they see in porn and not using condoms. And yeah, it's terrifying. And what you were saying about HIV, I think. Uh, for gay men there still is that fear because mm. the narrative was very much like gay men get AIDS um, and I yeah and I think that yeah there has been that fear with gay men and now for the first time in forever the rate of HIV contraction in gay men is going down well, there's also now PrEP as and well. there's PrEP as yeah. well which is fantastic but for straight people it's still going up mm. and like you know more straight people have HIV than ever before yeah. <laughs> it's just that like it, I mean it's not a death sentence like it once no, was no it's very no. different but it's still no. but a, I think, a massive it's inconvenience serious. <laughs> yeah. It's serious. Yeah. yeah it is serious and I think so many people I think because it kind of went away out of the public consciousness it's not like it was in the in the 90s and in the 80s mm. and so I think people just don't think about it as much they, there's not as much chat and that's why people like Jonathan Van Ness coming out and saying yes I'm HIV positive is such a positive well, I actually thing. did not know yeah, he'd done that yeah, yeah he did that yeah. about three weeks ago yeah. and he did it beautifully I yes, thought he did absolutely. it um, he's, a, he's, a, he's a force for good I think mm. Jonathan Van, Van Ness and the absolutely, way he yeah. announced it was so dignified and righteous and thoughtful and not forced no nope. he chose to do it mm. yeah most importantly um, yeah not forced not coerced by the press and it was really beautifully done but you know the reality is the difference between uh gay people and straight people in this country is that straight people didn't see all their friends die and that'll do it yes yeah that will be the deterrent yeah or the the thing that will uh make you take more responsibility yeah another uh sector of the population that is affected i mean i know we're broadening it out from male contraception but um people who are affected by (coughs) uh not wearing condoms are the seniors who yes. are suddenly having yeah. an active sex life after their partners die and, and or maybe in the know. nursing home. Yes. And they missed out on, on all that. So apparently there's a huge rise. They're all getting syphilis. They're, yeah. they're getting these sexually As transmitted other diseases. And also many, I know someone um, syphilis. many senior women are getting pregnant as well. Because they're um, what? Yeah. Wait a minute, yeah. Sally When I Hughes. say senior, I don't mean pensionable. <laughs> um, I mean senior... I hate to use the word, but geriatric is what they're using. Oh, in when you're 41, w. 42. Yeah, but lots, of women, but, but lots of women are getting their coils taken out and thinking, well, hey, I'm fine now, and then and then getting pregnant. And and it's a similar mindset that's causing um, the transmission of STIs amongst yeah. the, the silver shaggers. Mm. <laughs> um, I love that so much. They, but, but there is a certain mentality, I think, with, with um, older people. For example, lots of my friends... Um, their parents who sort of live in the countryside or or whatever will go out and have a couple of beers and drive home because they're older yep. and they're responsible drivers. Yeah, but just right. die roads, if their children, fine. you know, they would be horrified if their children did the same. And there is a certain thing with people when they're very experienced in life, I think, and they feel complacent and they feel in control and that nothing bad can happen to them. Yeah. Um, hence, hence the chlamydia and gonorrhea and syphilis and all, uh, well, and all the rest. You know, of it. who knows what their sex education was like? They're probably with the same person. I'm stereotyping, but. 
they probably were with the same person for a really long time. And, and they possibly didn't... married throughout the AIDS crisis. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they didn't have, you know, those scary textbooks like I had showing you pictures of herpes up close. <laughs> that might have helped them. Maybe we should send some. <laughs> <laughs> it is... Um... Like, I feel like fretting so much about young people at the moment and all the things we've discussed. Pornography, Understandable. Pornography and, and complacency around contraception. However, my kids have learned things about sex at school that I simply never did. Like the fact that women have orgasms, for example. Oh, my God. When I, when I learned, when I had my sex education at school, it was all about reproduction. It was it's, all about you know. preventing reproduction, making reproduction happen, and the male ejaculation as as in a vital part of reproduction. Mm-hmm. Nothing, enjoyment was never mentioned for anybody. Oh, no. And the female orgasm was certainly never mentioned, and consent was never mentioned. Yeah, no, we but never talked about But my kids have learned that. about all of that stuff at school, so things are changing. Yeah, I think we just had, like, no means no, and that was it. <laughs> Did you? We didn't yeah, even yeah, have yeah. that. I just yeah, don't think I consent came up at all. I no. don't think for me either. Really? I went to an all-girls school. Not that that should make any difference, but... No, but yeah, no, because I went, I went to school in, you know, suburbs of Sacramento. And I don't know, I guess California, maybe that's why it came <laughs> up. I don't know. Um, I, I was in two minds whether to put this next record in the playlist, but I love it so much. It's so appallingly misogynistic. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but, but it is a banger. Um, it's, um, it's Millie Jackson's All The Way Lover, where she essentially says, girls low jobs or get to fuck <laughs> fine you know <laughs> but it's a great record <laughs> That was Millie Jackson, all the way lover. Millie berating women there for uh, <laughs> for not being a good enough shag and for watching soap well. operas and sitting on their fat asses instead. <laughs> um, a really, really bad message there for Millie, but quite the tune. Um, Katie Puckrick, yes. hello. Something's got your goat. Something has my goat. So uh, this article in iNews that came out... Um, last week, a week and a half ago, by Vicky Spratt. And it caught my eye when it popped up on my feed because the, the headline was, A posher male colleague corrected my pronunciation in front of everyone. Class discrimination is steeped in workplaces. Um, I had to eagerly put my hot little hands on this article and read through it because it just reminded me of when I first moved to the UK in mm-hmm. the 80s and I was fresh off the boat from... From, from the colonies, from America. And I didn't recognize the treatment I was receiving as class discrimination, but I now realize it was. And because um, in America, of course, we have such a thing as class warfare as we've come to experience in the Trump regime. But um, at the time, there was a lot of correction of my pronunciation of things, which, of course, as an American, we have different pronunciations. We say mall instead of mal, and we mm-hmm. say pasta instead of pasta. Um, and But the problem was I worked at Manpower as a receptionist, and uh, I was on the phones, and, I mean, one of the problems was I couldn't understand 
British accent, so that uh-huh. was quite a hindrance. As somebody, it's really hard. Really hard. It's so really then hard. I had to like convey information that I didn't quite understand. But also, <laughs> um, throughout my years, as I progressed up my career and I started to work in broadcast, um, I remember auditioning for my very first TV show, The Word, in the early '90s, and. As I was auditioning, a cameraman, after I did a little piece to camera, took me aside and corrected my pronunciation. Of? Uh, well, in America, we say culinary and, and instead of culinary. Okay. So he said, it's culinary. And I said, well, I think it's both, but it's fine. Um, <laughs> Your language, whatever. <laughs> whatever. Uh, and then um, uh, down the line, a couple of months down the line, I was doing, I was on the show and I was working with a very posh sort of Oxbridge director uh and uh we were having a conversation about how i grew up where i grew up and i mentioned the fact that my dad used to teach at notre dame university and he just did he wet himself he'd split you know like spurted out his tea and just like sneeringly guffawed at me notre dame like, well, yeah, we wouldn't go Notre Dame. <laughs> you know, it's Notre Dame University in South Bend, Indiana, and everyone in America calls it that. So this article is really not just about that very patriarchal impulse of men to correct a younger female, but also that idea that if you aren't of, you know, from of the manner born, um, you have an inbuilt liability. And she goes on, Vicki Spratt, the journalist, goes on to say it cuts across everything in terms of even how you can enter the workplace. Mm-hmm. You know, she, in her case, she was trying to become a journalist and the entry points were, were few and far between for a young woman from the working class. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, there's a, a, a line here where she says, when I did eventually get a job as a journalist, an older posher male colleague corrected my pronunciation in front of the entire team in the first week. He did it instinctively, authoritatively, and without thinking. Mm-hmm. And that is that that classic, wonderful self-assurance that being of uh, the higher class can give you. Um, and she goes, her larger point is, though, it's really built into understanding um, that this class uh, thing is so insidious and the the prejudice is there and you have to have an awareness that um, it does exist if you can even fight it. You, you do have to be aware that, exi- that it exists and it, it, it definitely does. Mm-hmm. It's a very subtle way of putting someone in their place, isn't it? You, you get these people who have assigned themselves sort of guardians of language um, and they... And they sort of hide behind this. I'm doing it for the English language, guys. I, you know, I, right. I want to protect our heritage. But actually, it's just a, in practice, it's a subtle way of letting someone know that you're superior. That's so condescending. Someone. It's super condescending. This piece was hugely successful online, Vicky Spratt's piece. Yeah. Oh, was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was hugely successful. Um, it obviously shook a lot of trees. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Have you experienced... I never pronounce what anything Katie's wrong. Talking about. So. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone really likes my accent. Um, yeah, and I think I think I was thinking about this on the way over here that I uh, because of the way things were in the states when I grew up, I you know we lived in a we were probably like the poor family in the nicest area sort of situation. So I, I'd never really had a handle on 
how much money we had or didn't have. I knew all the things that we went without, that there was tension around money. I knew all of that. I knew what money felt like in my household. I knew that all the kids around me were wearing Abercrombie and Fitch. And I remember on the first day of orientation of high school, an older senior girl went, so it's not that everyone thinks you're poor if you're not wearing Abercrombie and Fitch, (gasps) but like... Everyone does think that you're poor. She sounds nice. Yeah, she was, you know, (laughs) fuck her. Um, But that sort of thing stuck with me. So it's weird now living, I've lived here for 13 years now, uh, somewhere where the class system is very much out in full force. And I, I I think there's, when I first moved here, I was so keen to adapt and to not be other and to try my hardest to, to fit in. But no matter how hard I try, no matter how long I live here, I will never be British. I'm a British citizen, but I will never sound like Sally. Mm. And that, I mean, that's fine. I don't, I don't necessarily want to, but I, I think that I've missed a lot of the times where people have, you know, been a dick to me because I've pronounced something wrong or because I don't know something. I think I live with a constant sense of kind of like low-level anxiety about being other because there's a... I still don't know what, you know, a certain percentage of what people are talking about simply because of my interests or maybe because I didn't go to university or because I didn't grow up here. There's this whole... It's like this whole myriad of reasons or things that I maybe don't know about or aren't aware of or don't know how to pronounce. And yeah, pronouncing shit makes me so nervous. I was even like looking at this. I was like, oh, this might be an interesting section of this article to read out loud. And I quickly scanned it to make sure that I really? knew how to pronounce all the words. Yeah, just subconsciously. Mm. Just, it, just, it just happens. It's so interesting because my strategy, I, I remember being like that for the first 10 years or so that I was here mm. and hearing my own wow. American accent jarringly echoing in my head against this, what I considered refined British accents. Yeah, melodic. Yeah. yeah, melodic and euphonious. And then there's me like... Rah, rah, rah. <laughs> Um, and then, uh, weirdly, in the middle of my decades-long stay or decades-long experience of being a Londoner, I did go back to L.A. I, I lived in L.A. for 12 years and then came back. And somehow that reset me and recalibrated me. And so now I feel very much like um, this is me and I'm loud and proud, you know, get used to it. And then I just – if I'm not saying something, if I'm not saying Notre Dame in the proper way, it's fine. I'm American. But Sally, you must have, like more to the point of this article, you must have encountered a class um, put yeah. down situation. Yeah, and I think... Because um... you're so trashy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just sort of ordinary, really. You know, I went to a state contract, um, a comprehensive school. I was about to say contraceptive, because that's what <laughs> we were talking about. So there's a mispronunciation for you. Freudian, uh, Freudian Jesus Christ. Freudian. <laughs> Sally, I believe it's um, Freudian. <laughs> um, I went to a comprehensive school and... Um, I always had a slightly funny accent because um, my um, father raised me and my father wasn't local to where I grew up, so I always sounded a bit strange. Um, but And we didn't have any money, so I was just kind of ordinary. And growing up, I never felt less than. I never was really aware of class growing up because literally everyone was the same where I grew up. Mm. Um Everybody just had quite ordinary jobs and not very much money and lived in a quite an ordinary house, and I really wasn't very aware of it. And when I moved to London, at that time, London was full of working-class people from all over the country who were artistic or were creative and who wanted to dance or paint or make films, and 
So London was full of working class people and they could afford just about to live in London and have quite an interesting life. Sure, yeah. between squats and council flats. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And, and I lived in housing associations. I lived in a squat for a while. You know, um, I lived absolutely nowhere for quite a while. And I wasn't really aware of class. When I became aware of class was when um, I entered the media and the influx of people who came after me were mm. all posh and white. Mm. And that was when I first became aware of class. And also when I started doing lots of radio, I suppose, um, noticing things about my accent, noticing things about my voice. Um, but it, class really wasn't an issue for me growing up. But later, it just, working in this industry, yeah. it became incredibly obvious that I wouldn't have got into it had I entered it five years later or attempted mm. to enter it five years for later. For sure. Um, and I think that's true for lots of us. I think lots of us feel that. And th there are lots of reasons for that. It's not just a, oh, well, you don't talk right. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it was really more practical. It was really more people didn't get paid for things and nobody could afford rent. And so you needed a mum and a dad rich enough to put you in a flat in order to do work experience in the media. Yes. Well, that wasn't the case when I entered yeah. the media. I got paid. Um, very early on so um, I did work experience but I quickly started getting paid like 50 quid a day or something enough you know mm. enough to get by whereas just a few years later um, you got paid literally nothing and daddy had to get you a flat and so that's a sorting hat again that's a filtration process that gives you lots of posh people so I, I didn't become I didn't become aware of it until later but certainly mm. I don't think that I would have had the career that I've had had I been five to ten years younger. I definitely, being an American was an advantage getting into yeah. uh, into show business. I mean, I started off as a dancer and a singer before I got into broadcast, but um, there was that sense of, like, they people didn't, they couldn't put baby couldn't in a corner. They couldn't put you into a box. Yeah, yeah. So they the, go, okay, well, you're just kind of other so yeah you and kind also, of transcend some there's of the something to be said for that I yeah. Think. yeah yeah and absolutely. also you know that's benefited me as well yeah so that you know you're kind of it's sort of glamorous as well you know memorable. It's like, yeah, yeah exactly americans are just better at it as well they're good at talking we come across so insincerely all the time <laughs> I feel like when i see it I, i'm watching uk drag race at the moment and everything they say i'm like oh they're pretending <laughs> i can tell they're pretending but yes. when, when you watch the americans like wow so naturally funny <laughs> And, and they can just, going and confident. I love and they that. can front it out for sure. I do. Just when you were talking, Sally, I was sort of thinking about. Oh yeah, when I first was starting out, uh, I was working as a contemporary dancer, and I met up with um, a friend of mine from America who had married this posh British guy, and so it was a collective of the posh British husbands' buddies, and they were all yeah. from some fancy dancy university. And um, I love they, those fancy dancy ones. <laughs> That's where I went. Yeah, and they. <laughs> They did the kind of, I would have been a young, hotsy-totsy, little nubile, dancing nubile, pretty baby in my early 20s, mm -hmm. um, fit as a fiddle, wearing my bodycon head to toe. Mm -hmm. And um, th this group of young men gave me the once-over, and they they said, oh, what do you do? And I said, oh, I'm a, a dancer. And they all looked at each other and just kind of like ugh, made this sort of moo with their face and just like, oh, like and then turned away from me like they just couldn't be bothered with me. And I was thinking, wait a minute, 
there was a whole movie called The Prince and the Showgirl. Yeah, like, yeah. I thought, like, being, a, you know, a hot vaudevillian yeah. uh, is, is the thing. So they saw the profession as being a bit below stairs? Yeah, like, a bit below stairs and, like, and, like, I wouldn't even have anything to contribute to the conversation. And anyone who talks to me for a second knows that I am brimming with word power yeah, yeah, and I have plenty yeah. of, you know, discussion points in my arsenal. Yeah. And uh, no, I was dismissed for the rest of the evening. And I've never forgotten that. I, I still I bring that up with this same friend and go, I really don't understand. Those guys missed a trick because I was like a cute little hot yeah, tot. yeah. Yeah, they should be so lucky. Right. I think those sorts of questions, though, are a really kind of insidious way of confirming unconscious bias. Because, of course, none of us would ever consider it socially acceptable to say, what do your parents do? How much money do you have? But actually, there are little verbal cues that yes. people give you about where they come from, what their social status is. Um, a, a common one is... You know, where did you go to school, for example? I didn't. Uh, (laughs) Do you ski? Is another one. Do you ski? Well, obviously, nobody where I come from skis. You may have gone on a school trip or something. Not that I ever went. Not because we were too poor, because I just didn't want to. But um, you people don't ski. Don't have a ski season. See, and I didn't even know that was like the thing because we did. I did learn to ski, but that was because California, California, right? You're near a mountain. I think I was wearing jeans, but also, (laughs) but also that's California. That's America as well. Is that it's a little more? Yeah, it's more. It's more accessible. I wasn't even aware. Those questions mean different things in different places. Yeah, yeah. like horses as well. Riding horses very redneck in in America can be redneck. Well, and and rugby. If you ask an English person if they play rugby, you're basically being asked if you're asking them if they're posh whereas in Wales it's a working class sport oh right right. I love that kind of stuff I know I'm gonna write this (laughs) down (laughs) so so in Wales you play rugby at state school Mm. Um, at comprehensive school you play rugby and um, in England and Scotland you play it in private school and not Mm. in state school so they have they're very different culturally but those sorts of questions are actually very often people gathering data on what they think of you what you are to them where you fit into the the food chain and this mispronunciation thing I find it really interesting because although I've definitely definitely been a victim of it or I've definitely um been super aware of my class in various situations I also do it to my son to your point about Americanisms all the time my husband and I will say you know my eldest will come in and say do you want to watch a movie? And we'll go, it's a film. (laughs) (laughs) But that's a different thing. You're trying to preserve the integrity of your culture. (laughs) Yeah. But we do that all the time. Or um, it would go through me if one of my kids said H, for example, and I would correct them and say H. Mm. And I do it to my own kids. I think we're all guilty of it to a certain degree. We all like to put people in boxes whether we like mm. it or not. But that's a parental uh, prerogative. You're not in a workplace humiliating somebody in front of the whole team, which is no, what No, I this, wouldn't do that. Yeah, this is a whole different kettle of fish. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't do that. I feel like I, I want to say it's getting better, but I don't. I actually think it, it was much less pronounced this um, class in the workplace was much less pronounced when I, when I was mm. growing up, for sure. And now I feel, now I'm much, much, much more aware of it. But maybe I'm more aware of it because now people have departments to, to sort this shit out. Yeah, it feels, I, on the flip side of this, I think that there's, uh, I think maybe I just spend too much time on Twitter. Um, but you have like this, <laughs> oh, fuck this posh wanker. Blah, 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 and yeah. it's like, okay, doing that, 
at the same time, like that doesn't help anyone either. Just mm. dismissing people for being posh or, oh, well, it's like when people talk about Phoebe Waller-Bridge and they're like, well, yes, Fleabag was very good, but her family, look at look her on Wikipedia. Mm. She's very, very posh. Mm. As I if hate, that I retracts that because the issue there away. is not Phoebe Waller-Bridge. The issue there is the fact that you're only allowed to have one program written and created yes. by a woman on at any given time. Right. Yeah. So it's gone to a posh yeah. white woman. Right. Absolutely. So That's there's that sort of... Issue, isn't it? Yes, totally. And so you have that side of it, which makes me really uncomfortable because it's like, okay, yes, some people are born into a certain family and it's kind of up to them how they choose to behave and what they do with that. You can't just go, well, they're posh, fuck them. Mm. Um, but then equally, this weird thing that I see happening at the moment is people are so, I think it's journalists, journalists on Twitter are so keen to let you know that they are not posh. <laughs> even if they have grown up, just in a perfectly <laughs> average, they're like, well, when we were growing up, we didn't even have this. <laughs> and just so you know, we didn't have this. I saw it yesterday. Someone was asking a perfectly valid question. I think they're writing a story like, as if you grew up working class, what um, what thing, like what uh, like objects did you associate with being posh? And someone responded and was like, oh, if I went to someone's house and they had Coke, cans of Coke in their fridge, I thought mm-hmm. that was really posh. And I responded and I was like, yeah, that was like the pinnacle of like, oh, look at this house. They have cans of Coke. And then someone responded and was like. Uh, if someone had a fridge, I found that really <laughs> awesome. I was like, well, you fucking win, don't you? You didn't even have a fridge. Right. There's like this also, weird... I reckon you did. Yeah, you probably fucking did. I saw, I read a, or watched a great um, archive documentary that's on iPlayer on BBC. Um, and there's just a fantastic collection of uh, documentaries, mostly in black and white, from the 50s all the way to the 80s. And there, this is one on class, and I, I think it's, it's part of an ongoing series that was happening in the sixties in the uh, on BBC called Man Alive or something. I, I can't quite remember, but anyway, um, so the very posh, uh, accented narrator and presenter is talking to up and coming. Uh, culture makers who are from the working class and my goodness they seem to be successful Uh (laughs) let's find out more let's Uh go in for a closer look so they talked to Twiggy and her boyfriend at the time Justin Villanova and then this other uh, an an artist whose name I can't remember but he um, was huge doing kind of psychedelic um, album covers and Mm. also Penguin uh, book. So he did like he was the branding guy for for all the Penguin front cover artwork. Did he make his own fonts though? He, uh, he probably, <laughs> unlike Flo, did not make his own fonts. Um, but the questions were so patronizing to Twiggy, to Justin, and Sorry, to this. I think you'll find it's part- <laughs> <laughs> I thought it and I didn't do it. <laughs> it's too easy. It's too easy. <laughs> That's so funny because I actually had like a flush of shame. Like, just when you said that, like, what did I do? Oh, no. (laughs) Um, And so the questions, I'm not kidding around, literally were uh, the the pompous uh, interviewer says to Twiggy, how how do you cope in a restaurant when you're reading a menu? Wow. And some of the words are in French. And then and the thing that I was so impressed with 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 the working class oiks uh were they were so patient and they were yeah. like they had they were so good humored and so like Oh, I'll help you, you idiot. Yeah. Did Twiggy tell him to fuck off in French? No, yeah, no, yeah, nobody <laughs> did that. But um and so one of the questions to the artist who did all the penguin books was um 
my goodness, you must be in meetings with the, uh, the you know, the book executives. And probably a lot of times you don't understand Jeez. what's being discussed. And he's going, no, I... I have a pretty good idea. If I <laughs> if I don't understand a word, I'm happy to ask them what it means. It's not a problem. And what came across was how self-possessed, confident, yeah. assured they were. And I was thinking, wow, this was 1968 when this thing was made. And they would have had to, I mean, they did break through this fossilized, petrified class structure. And so they were definitely superior human beings for having yeah. that total wherewithal to be able to confront this idiocy. But what's so interesting is that when you were like, how do you cope when you're looking at a menu? Then I'm like, well, you just Google it nowadays, <laughs> yeah. which is what I do. And I realize, like, there's just, I think I just have like a limit of how much shit I can care about. Cause I'm like, you know what? <laughs> yes. I don't know what half the shit is on a menu half the time mm. anyway. I grew up in another country. Yeah. We didn't go, like, we weren't into like fine dining. Like, we went to McDonald's right. on Hamburger Tuesdays when they were like 39 cents. Like, we did that. We didn't grow up. You know, I don't, you know, I still, I barely understand what a la carte means still. So like, <laughs> prefix, you, you know, like, and I just, I'm like, you know, I don't fucking know. Yeah. I will ask what this is. Ooh, if you find it embarrassing, if you, if it makes you uncomfortable that I don't know what this is, that says more about you than it does me. So mm. sorry. <laughs> yes. We are obsessed with it though. British totally. people are obsessed with it. And to your point about, um, the journalist saying they had no fridge or whatever and kind of playing <laughs> um, playing working class top trumps or, mm. or whatever on, on Twitter. I can kind of see the other side of that, though, because as a journalist, you are constantly, constantly accused of being a middle class Oxbridge type. I've had it heaps. Every journalist yes. I know has had it heaps where um, somebody on Twitter who, funnily enough, is usually middle class, um, I find, <laughs> will, will will tweet you and say, oh, well, what do you know, you you middle class, you know, pampered Oxbridge? And you're like, actually, no, no, mm -hmm. that's not who I am. That's nowhere near who when I am. When do you become middle class then? Because obviously you grew up right? working class, but you know, you you are middle class. Now. I love this so, question I, know, because I so don't I think understand people really it. cling on to their working class. But it's mm. like at some point, you know, yeah, yeah, you grew up working class. But you have but, a fridge now. Yeah, we're all on these different. I am a posh I white lady, but I, you know, we're all on these different. Runs I just don't of yeah, yeah. think where I, we come. I don't think the classification is fit for purpose. No. I don't. I, because, I mean, it's pointless, obviously, because somebody who grew up working class who now lives a comfortable lifestyle <laughs> is not the same as a middle class person. They're just not. The sensibility is different, and also I really struggle with the idea that working class people can't better themselves. They automatically then join the good yes. group, the, the middle class group. I struggle with that. Because actually, it is a different sensibility, um, but what, what's the but difference? that classification mm. that classification doesn't work. It doesn't. You can't get to a certain level of education, culture, intellect, and then join the other gang. That's not how it works. Because your no. because your values, your experience, your perspective is still really working class in many many ways. Do you think your kids are middle class? Yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> how do you yeah. feel about that? Well, fine. It's just who they are. Right. Like, it's just who they are. It's I'm fine. so happy we're having this conversation because I've realized this is a huge... I mean, you were talking, Kate, about um, the question marks that you still don't understand about British culture. And this is a, a big blind spot for me, is this sort of unspoken or actually discussed class warfare. When I moved to Britain in the, in the 80s, I remember uh, my boyfriend at the time was definitely from a working class family and all of his friends and all of... 
the people they associated with were very chippy about uh, if you were if you had ideas above your station. That's yeah. what I so because yeah. in America we have this idea like, hey, anybody can be president, and my goodness, well, look who's the president. <laughs> well, that's but literally true. the whole point of being yeah. American is to have ideas above your station. That's yes. the dream, right? It's, as, it's all about yeah. aspiration. Yeah. And so what I noticed really quickly was that. Anyone who did, like at the time, Richard Branson was making a big, you know, name for himself with Virgin Airlines, and people scoffed at that. Like, look at this, you know, idiot, and he's like entrepreneurial. Like, that's stupid. Mm-hmm. And like, you should wh- just be born with money. <laughs> yeah, you, you, yeah, you should just be born with money. And then, if you're not, don't even try to do anything. And none of this computed with me as an American. It's like, what? He's just like. Yeah. That is a businessman who is savvy and improving his lot. And then it was just even little things like, um, you know, my working class boyfriend would not even dream that he was entitled to go into a restaurant that had white tablecloths or Mm -hmm. something like that was just a sign. It's not for him. And I could not get my head around this. Yeah, we are absolutely obsessed with it. And and to your point about my kids, I'm like, whatever they are, it's fine. I don't, I don't think one is better than the other. Mm. That's the, that's uh, the but thing. But you don't think you I can d- become middle class over your life. You think that you're just a my, my well to do working class. Well, my my life, my lifestyle is middle class. I don't think anybody could um, could could argue mm. against that. Um, but you're not the same person if you went to private school as if you went to state school. You're certainly not the same person if you went to a, a boarding school um, as a state school. Your outlook is different if you grew up without money to if you grew up with. Your outlook is different when you couldn't take success for granted. Um, your outlook just is different. And But I think the whole the classification system is not fit for purpose because it makes no allowances for kind of nuance and social mobility and social Mm. mobility through marriage, through geography, through financial, because that's the other thing. It's not really about money. So you can be middle class and poor, working class and rich. So, well, yeah. And if you're black or if you're a brown person, there's all the the other filters that happen. The thing that's often overlooked is if you like became from like a happy life or an unhappy life. Yes. And I actually think that is probably the thing that... It's super influential. I mean, obviously, if you came from a a rich, unhappy life, it's easier than coming from a poor unhappy life <laughs> i have this story of, um, you're also more likely to be unhappy if you're very poor of course we yeah. know that statistically um i have an ex-girlfriend who comes from a really really rich she's actually an american family um and she came out to her parents and they kicked her out the house Fucking hell. and she moved into their private jet <laughs> <laughs> which is always yeah. like it's always like that was terrible for her that's that quite the struggle to the jet <laughs> i mean it was traumatic for her yeah yeah you yeah, cut off my trust fund. I mean, Everything. living in a private jet probably isn't that nice. It's still like a, but a caravan still, on wings, right? But you were still rejected by your family. But you were still protected by the private jet. But yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's nice. But it would that's be nicer if parents didn't have a private jet and just yeah. accept her, her sexuality. So, yeah. so I, I think need... there are all these little nuances, basically. There like, there's no one and, life that and is And vilifying one over the other doesn't help anyone. It's an awareness and an acceptance that the system exists. And what can we the kind system of do? Does, but the system mm. does also show preferential treatment oh, to submit yeah, over totally. based on Wait a minute, class. you guys are just skimming over this private jet thing. <laughs> <laughs> and I need to know, was it just like parked outside the house? Like I you're am, living out of your car? car it's in the cul-de-sac? <laughs> she, 
Or, the chauffeur drove her to the airport where it was oh, parked to the yeah, hangar. And yeah. then she, <laughs> so is she in the hangar? Is she having a shower in the you know the the toilets in the VIP lounge? Yeah. But know. the but the hashtag my private jet trauma story does actually speak to quite a big story of the week, which is Megan, right? So Megan's oh, yes. done this. So so Megan has done this interview about how unhappy and how difficult and how challenging the past year yeah. has been. And there is a huge backlash. I've been quite surprised to see it. I run a group called Necessary Family Estrangement on yeah. Facebook. And I've been quite shocked by some of the posts I've read on it about this because people who have been broadly supportive of her are suddenly not so supportive of her and they're saying, well, she's talking about how hard it's been but boo-hoo-hoo with her incredibly lavish lifestyle. Likewise, all the usual suspects on Twitter. I think Toby Young Ugh. sent a really oh, monstrous gosh. tweet about, yeah. oh, boo-hoo-hoo, you're absolutely beautiful. You have um, a husband worth 40 million, a healthy baby, and you are converting this kind of lavish cottage. Poor you. And it's so... It's a point of view I just don't understand. I just don't understand how... uh, Who on earth can conflate mental health with what you physically have? We know know there are parallels between having nothing and being unhappy. We know you're more likely to be depressed if you're poor. But the idea that you cannot know suffering, you cannot know true unhappiness if you have money is absurd. It's... it's it uh, blows my mind to the point where I can't come up with the it's words. Such, what it's it is. such a cliche, isn't it? Because it, the poor little rich girl thing has been a trope forever. And, you know, we understand. I mean, there's, you know, the cliche, money can't buy happiness. I yeah. mean, that is just built into the culture. We We yeah. understand this. And yet... Um, it's just a weird people love to be judgmental and um, they love to, you know, people like Toby Young or Piers Morgan who make this sort of remark. Just these white men who are just so, you know, Miserable. in a great position to tell other people yeah. what hard looks like or what doesn't look she like. She said in the interview when uh, Trump, Tom Bradby said, you know, um, well, come on, you put yourself in this position. Or he said words to this effect. You put yourself in this position. You've had a hard time. Surely you were expecting it. Like, what else were you expecting? And she said that it might be fair. Like, <laughs> yeah. she was saying, you know, I accepted that I was going to be criticized, that I was going to be scrutinized, that people would talk about me a lot, but I thought it would be fair. Yes. And I completely understood that. She's mm. like, I didn't expect there to be so many lies. I didn't expect yeah. there to be so much uh, wrong speculation and so much lying. And so what lots of people are essentially saying is that a woman, one woman, regardless of her background, one woman has been piled on by the media pretty much every day for two years. Absolutely, yeah. Every single thing she says, does, wears, partakes says, in, doesn't is say. picked apart... Um, often with a great deal of uh, of lying, embellishment, and so in, and so on thrown in, and she is not allowed to be upset about that right. because she has money, and uh, and people are cross with her for being upset mm. and saying that she's being manipulative, uh, for saying she's upset and she's whining for saying she's upset when asked a direct question about it, and uh, I mean I empathise a little bit because of uh, of certain events in recent months, but but her. The scale, the scale of the issue for her is just, it's unparalleled. Well, I'll tell you. every single day. Yeah, Yeah. I'll tell you what, um, it does, Americans don't understand this. No, no. That's the other thing is that, uh, because Kate and I were talking about this before we came in today about, um, 
you know, she's basically living the American dream. She's, yeah, she, right. She'd reached the pinnacle of Americans' version of achievement, which is to be a TV star. Yeah. And then what? She's combined that with, you know, being a marrying into the royal family. That's like a fairy ding, tale. Ding. Yeah, it's yeah, a total literally. fairy tale. And she's pretty and she's mixed race. And it's just like she's just a, a contemporary you know, true princess, like a, a cultural, pop cultural princess and a princess princess. And um, the only glaring issue that seems to be that flagged up by all of this pylon is, hmm, could it be that she's not white? Is that, <laughs> yeah. is that the huh. telltale thing? Yeah. Because huh. that is the only thing. It is because um, this class thing, so very often you hear talk of class in relation to Megan that really means race, right? Because yes. actually, if you put... It's, it's, a, it's a gentler way of talking about race or a seemingly gentler way right. to talk about her class. So you see lots of uh, right-wing columnists, for example, saying she's just not classy or she's, you know, she's a bit below stairs. But actually, if you look at Kate Middleton, for example... They're about the same, so they're, they're mm-hmm. not—they're not super posh. They're privileged yep. middle-class girls who both went to private school, who yep. had affluent yep. parents, who actually went to work, who were not sitting on private income, who who went to work. So they're about the same, but there's a key difference yeah. between and, them, and, then, and we know what that is, right? Yes. There's that, Melatonin. and then I think also that, uh, like with, we were talking about with uh, American accents, uh, I think the way that American women. Are, there's a there's a thing with that the way that American women I think are perceived and portrayed and treated um, here and I think that she is just I've said this a whole bunch but she's just like the perfect storm of things that the right wing press will rile people up she's a woman of color she's mixed race she's American she's a woman she speaks her mind she's confident she has, she's, she's confident she wasn't a virgin she's had she's a life been she's married divorced. she's divorced yeah. and she mm. has opinions and she voices them I think another key difference between she's a feminist Catherine mm. and and Megan is that Catherine's in a much different position and i think william is in a much different position yeah, than harry is and she's yeah. she plays that part right and megan doesn't have to she and i also don't to, think yeah. that she would, would be capable yeah yeah i don't think i don't think that she would but we don't you know we'll, we'll never know if she were mm. in that position what would have happened but it it just makes me sick. It makes me sick that you take everything else away from it. You have a woman saying she's a new mum. She's having a hard time. She's vilified publicly every single fucking yeah. day and has admitted, I'm having a hard time with this. And everyone's yeah. like, oh, you fucking bitch. It's just, yeah. it's ridiculous. And it's, it's just mean. It's yeah, sort, I was, that's it's what I feel. Anyone who thinks that Meghan Markle can't be sad just because she's rich it's is ludicrous. just so mean. Yeah. It's like everything, yeah. everyone's traumas are in, like, uh, what's it called? Proportion to their life. Yes. Well, it's like saying your broken leg didn't hurt because you're still alive. Yeah, you know, it, exactly. It, it, <laughs> it, it, it's ludicrous. It doesn't make sense no. in any context. <laughs> no. like, it, it's really, really insane. And I think, you know, mean is the word because to see somebody who is visibly distressed, which she absolutely was, visibly mm-hmm. distressed, mm-hmm. and your take home from that to be to double down mm. and to say she's whining and to heap yet more criticism on someone who's already invisible distress for having the audacity to admit that they are in distress is is really mean. That's the you know it's, it's really really unkind. I think that's a, a lovely snapshot of what's going on in you know right. di- di- digital culture right now, right. which is that weird 
I mean, I like to call it the um, uh, oh gosh, I, I I forgot what I'd like to call it. Anyway, <laughs> it'll 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 come to me in a minute. But um, it's that that whole that pylon culture where somehow there's some sort of um like a crowdsourced idea of this person is now the designated target and she's become a designated target. Like she's, it, Megan's okay to, um, what was, okay, I'm going to try and claw this back. What was the school <laughs> where uh, all those kids were killed? Columbine? Co- no, the, Sandy the, Hook. Sandy, Sandy Hook. Hook. The, yeah, yeah, so the Sandy the Hook. denial. The denial thing. Yeah. So it's like Sandy Hook syndrome where all the, you know, everyone, all these creepy, horrible people with no souls uh, piled on to the Sandy Hook, bereaved Sandy Hook parents to say, yeah. oh, you just pretended that you had a child who was killed. So it's like everyone gets these, those sort of people who are beyond the pale, who somehow get off on attacking somebody who it's like they does not impact their lives in any way. Um, that is like a sickness to me. Yeah, so, no, absolutely. Yeah. Although yeah. they are being successfully prosecuted, which is about the most optimistic Thank thing yes, I've seen that. happen in some time. True. Right? The, the that letter that Harry wrote. Oh, yeah. but the far right, the far right Sandy Hook deniers. Oh, yes. yeah, yeah. Um, those with a platform are being prosecuted by the parents, and rightly so, because that's like a Alex hate crime. Yeah. Yes. they should. Crime. Yes. Um, the thing that the other side of this that I, that I find particularly confusing is uh, I mentioned Harry's letter because I misunderstood what we were talking about. Well, but that, when that is also ongoing. Yeah. yeah, when they announced that they were suing, I think the the Sun in the Mail for yes. publishing the letter that um, Megan had written to to her father um it, where he talks about these these horrible uh f- i think he calls them like evil forces or something along those lines that basically took his mother from him mm. this he's afraid and knows that's that the same thing is happening wife. to his wife and i just cannot understand where you have on one hand these people who are just like rapidly obsessed with princess diana and people still put her on the fucking front cover of you know all these tabloids sure. every day so that's still, fine, yeah. right? But yeah. oh, but he can't feel sad about it. And this direct thing, she was chased in a car by paparazzi, mm-hmm. hounded to her death. Mm-hmm. And people can't seem to fathom why he's concerned that his wife that history may repeat. Exactly. Mm. It just it's oh just God, stupid. That's heartbreaking. Isn't mm. it? It's, it's is. disgusting. It's but really disgusting. It, it, it is heartbreaking, but but a very simple concept for anyone to understand, right? Like it's yeah. it, like it's common sense <laughs> yeah. that yeah. that was his mother. She was chased to her death. Now he has a wife who is being subjected to the same level of scrutiny, criticism, and so on. Like it's a really simple thing to wrap your head around. So I just can't understand how people. I mean, it's willful, isn't it? Yeah. To, to oh, willfully absolutely. say. Well, they're being manipulative. They're being whiny. Mm. It's just willful because the only alternative is to accept you're actually not a good person. The only <laughs> yes. you 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 have to either double down and argue, or you have yeah. to say, actually, I'm just I'm yeah, I'm a bad person. Have, uh, I'm a empathy. bad and unkind person, and that's inconceivable to to those sorts of people. So they just have to keep arguing. It is keep... like a group madness, though. Those people, totally. the, you know, mm. the, those people who who join up. Uh, this is kind of off topic but still vaguely on topic a friend of mine who was uh who's a journalist who went to teach in a rural community in in oregon 
um, he, the local newspaper, did a thing about him, like, hey, writer from uh, San Francisco is in town and whatever. Anyway, all this hate mail came in to this little local newspaper about, like, he needs to go back to, you know, that home, homo haven that he's come from, <laughs> yeah. and we, we don't yeah. need him here. And anyway, the death threats started coming in, <laughs> and uh, the editor of the newspaper, this would have been, like, in the 90s or something, or early 2000s, ended up... F- calling up some of the people who'd, who'd written in and put them on the spot like, um, got this letter, what do you have to say for yourself? And one of the people said, it was a woman, and she went, I don't know, it came over me. I don't know, I just felt like I needed to do it. Like, she yeah. couldn't justify yeah. it, didn't double down. And I think a lot of this behavior that we see against Megan, it's like, oh, cool, we're doing a kicking on uh, who? Oh, her? Okay, yeah, fine. Well, I don't it's, care. it's the kind of people who would attend a public execution, right? Is yes. It, it, yes. It's that kind of, hey, this is or what lynching. we're doing. Yeah. When you see those happy faces and those weird postcards that they used to have in the 20s of, hey, we were at this lynching. See that <laughs> dead guy hanging from a tree? Jesus Yay. Christ. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, no, and people, people get so <laughs> lost. <laughs> get so lost in the collective because because it's so fun it's so energizing hate is fun and it makes you feel alive and it makes you forget about your own horrible yeah, little limited it's some life people's um numbing technique or sure. their their distraction their which will also mentions in her book um <laughs> yeah. yeah it's oh god just fucking exhausting it is exhausting um when we come back though more cheerfully we're going to talk to um katie puckrick about abba because that's that's <gasps> true joy right that's true unadulterated joy Hello, welcome back. Um, as we approach the last uh, bit of the show, can we talk about um, beta blockers, please? Yes. And dating, who knew that they go together? They go What's together. the story here, Katie Puckrick? Because you're interested in this one. Yes. Um, as a dater, am I allowed to say that? You're a dater? Um, you know, I I have a lot of big dreams <laughs> where, <laughs> where, where dating is concerned that have not been borne out by reality. But... Um, <laughs> Hope springs eternal. I get up every morning and put on my lipstick uh, and get out the front door. So we'll see what happens. But um, uh, I haven't reached a stage where I felt like I've needed to take a beta blocker to go out um, on a date. But there's a story here by Surin Kale called Bitter Pill. A startup run by men is encouraging women to take beta blockers to calm pre-date nerves. How on earth did we get here? Um, <laughs> I will concede that going, uh, meeting a new person um, is scary. However, I thought that a little, you know, a few sips from your first glass of white wine, right. that was the, you know, that's usually the strategy. It seems to, to work well. Um, you know, it seems like for me, the idea of taking, the fact that it's men encouraging women to take the edge off uh, by taking a beta blocker to me is almost like a, a step on the road towards, hey, just take a roofie. Yeah. You know, like yeah. d- d- give yourself your own date rape pill. And a, and a beta right. blocker mixed with alcohol <laughs> is that. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Our first date now is kind of fun. Is yeah. Like, like, isn't that the whole. I like, mean, like, the the, it's thing. an upper, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then add to which the fact that you kind of want to have all hands on deck when it comes to your your instincts and awareness. When you're meeting somebody new, you don't you you do kind of want to be able to suss them out and feel like, OK, I'm getting a vibe that they could be dodgy. If you're taking a beta blocker, I've never done one, so I don't know what the effect is. But I can imagine that it would kind of dull your sense of like this is 
a little inappropriate or, you know, you would miss those little cues that normally nerves would give you about something being right or not right. Yes. I, nerves are helpful. They're often telling you what to do, aren't they? They're, yeah. telling you, yeah. they're giving you a heads you. up about something. Yeah. And that's literally what they're for. Yeah. Um, so the advert... Uh, by the company which has been doing the rounds on social media. Um, So it has um, a a lovely manicured lady's hand holding holding this pill. And the caption reads, Nervous about your first date? Propranolol can help help stop your shaky voice, sweating and racing heartbeat. Yeah. I mean, it's... So people have lost their shit on Instagram, <laughs> as you can imagine. Yeah. Um, they're so. saying, this is absolutely disgusting. Don't market medication as if it's Glossier. Because um, it does. It looks like a Glossier ad. Yeah, you could yeah. literally kill people with this crap. And so on. But apart from anything, even if it weren't dangerous and even if it weren't so definitely rapey sounding, which it definitely is. Yes. Um, it, it's. I just find it so patronising telling women that they're like shitting themselves over a date. Are they? I, I don't I'm know. I'm not sure it's women are terrified of dating. But I. I mean, well, are your girlfriends terrified every time they go on a date? I'm sure they're, they're nervous. You know? I think a lot of it comes from and men aren't. I mean, yeah. I don't get it. Right. I think a lot of it comes from the fact that I think women are expected to sit through that three-hour date. Yeah. <laughs> I, did, I, I think there is something I'm a big campaigner for leaving a date when you know it's not going anywhere. Before you and have to like, spend loads oh of money God, and your yeah. whole evening. What, what, do you, what do you say? Okay, no, so uh, okay, we'll tell, do a little uh, acting. Okay, good. Role-playing. Role <laughs> so you've had your drinks, you know, yeah. you've, had, you've given them a chance, you're 45 minutes in, and you know you're never going to want to shag them. Yeah. Mm. And then you just go like, look... Like I've had a really nice time. You're obviously a really great person. You're very attractive, but I'm just not feeling this for me romantically. Like um. we can have another drink if you want. They always say no. Um, <laughs> but um, just this is not going to go anyway. For I me think 45 minutes is about right. Yeah. I think you pretty yeah. much know. My record is 23 minutes. Oh wow! And did you That's do that same impressive. speech? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I just have to <laughs> say, I have to say to the listeners that Flo was fixing me with a, a very warm. <laughs> Yeah. There was uh, a touch of the hand. There's a touch of the yeah, hand yeah, on, on my important. knee, and, and yeah. like like full like eye to eye contact, and, and yeah. very you delivered that very warmly. Yeah, Katie, Katie seemed Katie. fine. She did kind of. Katie, her did things. you feel wounded or did you feel good? I felt a stun. I felt stunned because I thought it was going great with us. <laughs> Do you know what could have helped with that? A beta blocker. <laughs> yeah, this whole thing, and I really, really like this article actually because it talks about the sort of um, commodification of um, uh, wellness, right? And weighted blankets. I have one reader, and it's uh-huh. a listener, <laughs> and I really like it. But um, this whole sort of uh, capitalist. Uh, wellness goop vibe uh, and this idea that we should abolish any feelings of nerves and hey Mm. ladies just get rid of your anxiety it's like there's good reasons why we have these natural reactions yeah. to yeah, things. Yeah, absolutely. Feel right? the fear and then just do it anyway. Right? Absolutely. And or, if you or, feel or like you don't like to the state, fear, leave. if it becomes insurmountable and think, actually, this yeah. is not working yeah, for me. Yeah, that's yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we should say, to give them the right of reply, um, that hers, the company, um, immediately 
um, posted, OK, we got this one totally wrong. We agree the post was misguided and reductive and we apologise that this slipped through the cracks. <laughs> We've permanently removed that ad and are working with our medical team to ensure that all copy is safe and accurate for the consumer moving forward. I mean, that sounds like they thought it was a great idea and it went tits up and people didn't like it and so they had to pull it, right? Yeah. I mean, nothing medical it, about it. Yeah, so they're saying they pulled it. Um, the and they're unhappy the advert, with it. Just the, the advert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this notion that we have to be kind of medicated. Yes. We have to be medicated Sally, to... that's it. Get through... To, 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 to tolerate sitting with a man. That you don't, <laughs> yeah, to tolerate sitting with a man. Um, it, even a nice man. That you, you need to be medicated because you're, you're, you're kind of slightly bubbly stomach or... or it's very it Stepford to, Wives. It's like it's just, super weird. Yeah. It's very just like put up and shut up. And if you're not going to put up and shut up, take this pill and then put up and shut up. I mean, it's slightly back to what uh, we were talking about with Flo at the top of the show about sex drives. That's the other thing that's always medicated. You know, women, women who have lost their sex drive for whatever reason, take a drug. Let's get, let's get you back in in mm. the swing of things. Never asking, well, what? How have we got here? What's led yeah. to this? Mm. Yeah. This idea that these normal processes have to be medicated to fix them. Mm. Yeah, and so I that think men can have their date. I think it's worth noting as well that this company, hers, is the sister company, literally, to For Hims, which I get advertised a lot because I listen to a lot of American podcasts. And it's about uh, it's the same sort of thing, a subscription service where you can get pills for erectile dysfunction and for hair loss. And when you listen to like the male-targeted ad, you go, oh, that's actually great. You know, good for them if they're worried about these things. They don't have to feel ashamed if they go to the doctor or whatever. They can just get these things through this service. Fab. Mm. And then when I read this, I was like, is that the equivalent? Like <laughs> erectile dysfunction and hair loss. And then we get, hey, ladies, <laughs> feeling nervous mm. about your date? Why don't you roofie yourself? <laughs> like, yeah. How is that? The, why is that the sort of wellness thing that you they wanted to target? Them, great <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm so. For hers, if you're listening. So um, um, let's come away from beta blockers. So for mm. these last couple of minutes, it's Katie Puckrick, please tell yes. us about ABBA because that's always the best way to end any conversation. Woo! Dancing queen. <laughs> so, everybody, ABBA, ABBA files out there and in the room. On Sunday night on Channel 5 at 9 p.m., I am participating in a ABBA documentary that is covering the top three most beloved ABBA songs. Um, and it was such a joy to participate in this thing because I realized the funny thing about ABBA, I grew up with them. They were just always around. You, you know, I never chose to listen to them. I didn't have to choose because they were just there presented to me through AM radio, then FM radio, and then, you know, from every karaoke and drag show I ever attended <laughs> thereafter. And um, the documentary is a joyous look uh, at the way they came up in the world uh, we didn't talk to the ABBAs themselves, but there's a lot of archive footage. But we did talk to key participants and producers and engineers who worked with them, and then also frothing fans like myself. <laughs> and um, in the process of uh, researching it and doing this documentary, I discovered a lot of interesting things about them. One was, this is something I didn't know, before they came together as ABBA, the four members were all individually successful and famous in Sweden. Really? I didn't yes. know that. Yeah. So they had individual careers, like Benny was, like, one of the guys was in, like, the the Swedish Beatles, and then the other guy was I in, mean, like... they were a super group, weren't they? They, they were a total super group, and the women were, were songwriters mm. independently. They wrote their own songs, and they... 
uh, also had their own careers. And one of the other guys was uh, in this big folk group. And so they took all of their different working parts put them together, and they actually came together um, just as kind of a, a wheeze. They were couples, and they were on holiday, and they uh, started singing for, I think there was like a, a military group there, so it was like they just started harmonizing on the beach, and then it was one of those like, let's put on a show, it's great. Um, but Holy shit. It's, it, it's just <laughs> like, the beach because they were, <laughs> they were just trying to, um, like, I think they were, to begin with, trying to figure out, like, oh, maybe we'll do... You know, this this song will feature the boys and this song will feature the girls. And then pretty quickly on, they realize, wait a minute. It's magic. It's magic. And the women are the one, you know, they are the dynamos. They're the ones who are right out there. And um, uh, an interesting point that I learned about Swedish music was before ABBA came along. And in fact, ABBA came out of this world. Schlager was the name of the music. That was this uh, kind of middle European, northern European music that not touched by the hand of Africa at all. Like it was just this kind of hokey, cokey, you know, chirpy, chirpy, cheap, cheap kind of uh, caravan pop music. And they came out of this kind of naff music tradition and created, kind of heightened it. And of course, added touches of, of disco and, you know, gave in a little bit of rhythm, you know, very white sounding, but actually <laughs> made it you know, very beautiful. Like they actually elevated, which could be something that could be quite cheesy and throwaway. And so when can we watch this? We can watch and enjoy Savor the Flavor on Sunday night, Channel 5 <laughs> at 9 p.m. And I know that you're not going to tell us the top three because that would be a spoiler. I but know, can we please source everyone's number one episode? Oh. Kate Sevilla, <laughs> come on. I'm not a huge ABBA fan. <gasps> I know. I, I can give you my top three. I do to Kate's and mine and then yeah, everyone okay. else's. Flo Perry, go on. <laughs> go. Okay, winner takes it all. Correct. I just like, I like, I like the slow bangers for ABBA. I like think they do a real good emotional song. Yeah. Uh, Chikakita. Chikakita. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Fernando. I mean, obviously shares Fernando in uh, Mamma Mia. Mia. Here we go again. I think maybe it's the best song of all time, cover or original. Uh, and then you've got the, the big the big bangers like Dancing Queen, Mamma Mia, Super Trooper. Like, I do like Super yeah. Trooper. There you go. <laughs> yeah, Super Ba, Chupa Ba. Katie, are you allowed to tell us your favorite ABBA track? Um, I have to say Dancing Queen is my favorite ABBA track because I feel like I am a dancing queen.